Welcome to The Age of Trust, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon that explores how we are securing our future for the fourth industrial revolution, with knowledge becoming critical to Australia's international economic strength. This podcast series explores themes that challenge the productivity of knowledge workers with secure and reliable communications. We discover the explosion in remote working and connectivity and how organizations will need to manage, secure, protect and organize intangible assets such as systems, processes, IP, data, personal information, corporate information and even competitive knowledge. Get ready for the new age of trust by Verizon. Welcome to the Age of Trust podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Fergus Hansen, who's the director of the International Cyber Policy Centre at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, otherwise known as ASPE, and Derek Fittler, who is the head of government for Verizon Business Group. Welcome to both of you today. Thanks, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. Fergus, can I start with you? Can you give us an overview of ASPE, what it does, what's the sort of initiatives it's involved in? Sure. So ASPE is a nonpartisan think tank. We try to help promote better public policy in Australia and provide testable advice. Uh, so we're really about better public policy making in Australia. There's a team of about 60 researchers and analysts at ASPE. The team I run is about half of that. A significant size team as part of the larger organisation. Yeah, that's right. And it's a mix of people have lots of different backgrounds from the public sector, the private sector, tech backgrounds, policy backgrounds. Yeah, a real mix. And our bread and butter is really applied empirical research. So trying to build new databases that can advance public policy discussions. Okay. So today we're talking about the Critical Infrastructure Act. There's been significant changes in the Act and what impact it will have both from a protection perspective, but also in terms of what businesses need to understand. Derek, I'd like to bring you in here. What does the Act mean now? What are the changes that have happened? Clearly, the legislation is quite significant. It really is bringing around quite a step change in the critical infrastructure area. First of all, the government commenced this journey a couple of years ago with the 2018 legislation that covered four sectors. And this is really an expansion of that in terms of the reach, so in terms of the sectors that are now covered. So now includes communications and financial services data storage and defence industry, higher education, energy, etc. So there's a, a whole host of sectors that are now incorporated or will be incorporated with, within the scope. And then the other piece I'd see is really around that starting to change or expand on what the engagement and role government is having with that critical infrastructure sector, particularly in relation to the powers that government has and so that is, a, I guess, a follow-on from the government's cybersecurity strategy that it released last year where it signalled that they were going to make changes in this space and bring about a positive security obligation on organisations that fall within the remit of the legislation. So that's quite a change in terms of government actually saying, well, yes, you need to step up and meet some standards potentially as part of, I guess, of trying to lift the overall security and preparedness of the country as we respond to emerging threats. So I think that's a a clear reflection of the change, as well as at the same time, not just covering those sectors, but also supply chain. So 
reaching out to cover potentially influence uh, entities that are contributing to the operation of those sectors. So quite significant change. I'm going to come back to the supply chain issue because I think that's really interesting. But I guess the first question, Fergus, will be how prepared are these sectors as that sort of scope has expanded to be able to really understand what their responsibilities are? Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done. Where are we at? Well, the government's obviously been running pretty broad-ranging consultations with the different sectors, but I think it's really a case of some sectors being super well-prepared and very ready for this, and others at the other end of the spectrum being completely unprepared and not with a great deal of understanding of how this law is going to apply or even that the law does apply. So in some of the discussions we've had with you know peak bodies, for example, I think there's been sort of almost a complete lack of awareness at all that this is, is happening. And there's lots of sectors, I think, that haven't had this type of engagement with government on cybersecurity before that really, I think, are just sort of trying to really come to terms and grapple with what this is going to mean. And you know, it's a complete unknown for them. So there's a complete spectrum from very well prepared. And you can think of those the original sectors that this used to apply to, they're used to engaging with government on this. They spend a lot of money trying to protect their assets already, like banks, for example. And then you, you know, move to the other end of the spectrum and there's um, people that are, you know, still trying to get their heads around how this is going to apply and what this means for them. So I guess an example that's live this week would be the meat processing facility that's had a ransomware attack and I think that's affected operations in US. Canada and Australia. That would be an example maybe of the type of organisation that wouldn't have previously considered themselves critical infrastructure. Would that be fair to say that they now would fall as a sort of organisation under that new definition? This is one of the interesting areas, I think, about this bill, about how wide you cast a net in terms of which specific facilities are going to fall under the, the scope of the remit of the Act. I think one of the problems is, you know, it's like intelligence, is that if everything is classified, then nothing's classified, nothing's a secret. So you can't sort of just carte blanche, make everything falling under this act or you'll have all kinds of problems, I think, in terms of both compliance and absurdity. You know, is one facility going to bring Australia to its knees if it goes offline for a few weeks? Probably not. So I think we need to begin to the detail of who this is actually going to apply to, especially in new areas like agriculture and things like meat processing plants. I think we need to be a bit more careful. And I think that kind of detail is going to be really important because otherwise it's going to become absurd. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because we see headlines and I guess how the headlines sort of impact what's the really important stuff that the legislation is intended to affect. So, Derek, I can see you nodding there. Keep your thoughts. Yeah, look, clearly the government has signalled that its intention is to engage and consult. And as Fergus has said, it's been running you know, lots of workshops with industry and taking submissions and et cetera in terms of how the legislation will operate. Fergus is right. We do need to be careful that you know, not everything can be a, a critical infrastructure asset and there is some sort of proportionality and reasonableness that's brought to the interpretation, of, I guess, the operation of the legislation. But certainly signalling government is very clear that it is taking a broader view of what is critical infrastructure and that reflects that we are increasingly much more interconnected and that there are much more a scope for an event against a particular operator to have broader economic impacts and I think that's perhaps the realisation that we are starting to come to and having to deal with. So that interconnectedness that you just mentioned in supply chains that we talked about a little bit earlier and talking about IoT connected devices, when we're looking at that sort of fabric of 
connection and what we look at when we're thinking about what supply chains look like. Can you give me some examples of where there is an opportunity to be looking more carefully at what some of those potential weak spots look like? Yeah, look, I'd certainly say that governments around the world are clearly uh, grappling a little bit with the challenges of supply chains and the risks that they impose. And defence sectors are a very obvious and topical example of that from time to time because of ultimately the the national security interests that uh, defence represents. So clearly the supply chain an important issue. Just in the context of COVID, we have started to see delays just to the availability of chip manufacturing, etc., which is then leading to other delays in the availability of hardware, etc. And so, and that's not from any malicious or just a, a reflection of changed circumstances that have arisen through COVID. So, so the supply chain area is very real. I think governments have had experiences where they have seen attacks directed through the supply chain. Indeed, in the UK, government is uh, looking at a legislation or, or extending obligations in relation to supply chain based on some activity that came around through an event called Cloudhopper a few years ago that worked through managed service providers. And so there is ongoing concern and certainly it's an area that is often seen. You hear about, well, what's the weakest link and where do you target? And I think government has done a fair amount itself to focus on strengthening government. As I said at the start, this legislation is a part of starting to strengthen the overall defences of a nation, particularly with the focus on critical infrastructure. And I think supply chain has a role to play in that. Fergus, I might just cast a a broader lens on this discussion. You have the the Sydney Dialogue scheduled for later in the year with a really interesting mix of people, both local spokespeople as well as those from other countries. How will some of the things we're talking about today, what are the discussions that you'll be having at the Sydney Dialogue and why are they important to be having those conversations? Yeah, well, so later this year in November, we'll be hosting the the City Dialogue. It'll be a hybrid event because of uh, the COVID situation and uncertainty around the border things. But it's really about talking about some of these big issues that are coming down the pipeline. So to me, there's, there's a bunch of really big gaps that we've got at the moment. The first is that there's a big lag time between the ubiquitous deployment of new technologies and the subsequent regulation of those technologies. So if you take the example of social media, you know, it's almost like a, a decade-long lag time between when everyone on the planet is using it and governments sort of realising that they need to regulate this. But there's a whole range of other technologies that are coming along that, you know, we're going to be in a similar situation. There's a big lag time as well between government use, harnessing of new technologies and ethical and normative frameworks that catch up to that. And there's a sort of a, an increasing clash almost between big tech and government. And if you think about some of the really important breakthroughs that we need for societies in terms of whether it's things like climate change, whether it's breakthrough medical technologies, whether it's making sure we have really good technology in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, whatever, needs to be a much more collaborative dynamic than, than a clash. So we think by bringing principles together, ministers and, and tech CEOs it's going to be possible as well as civil society leaders to have a a better understanding about where everyone's coming from and hopefully a a more constructive approach to the development and deployment of new technologies. I think that's really interesting. And then if you're looking at this discussion we're having today about something like critical infrastructure and 5G and connective, just the proliferation of connected devices and how you can get in closer lockstep from a government perspective when you're talking to industry about mushrooming 
I guess, challenges as well as opportunities. So would there be some other examples that you can give, Derek, that you're seeing on how government is working with industry to make sure that they really understand and what the industry understands what government needs to know? Yeah, look, I suppose certainly just on following up the strand from Fergus, there is a, clearly a bit of a lag in terms of the engagement and, and the recognition of, of, you know, of that whole trend of convergence. And government has been slow to respond to that. I think really government is trying to engage. And I, I think the critical infrastructure legislation, which we we're talking about earlier, is an example of government trying to engage with industry and listen and hear both the opportunity and the potential challenges with new technology and that overall emergence of the convergence. But I think that it's just an ongoing piece. It's a, it's a challenge that we face. Technology does change very rapidly and it's very difficult for government to be across it and in front of the change. And I think there's a tension there. Industry is there to meet a need and to identify needs and, and opportunities. Government needs to come along and provide the road rules on how we govern that. Now, that's a, there's a, just a natural tension that happens in that as to who is ahead of what in the curve. And I think at the moment, no doubt, it's very clear that technology and industry are ahead of where government is. And, and that's a, an ongoing challenge for us all. So, Fergus, I'd be keen for your thoughts on this. We saw Australian government move very quickly on things. We've seen all industry and government accelerate change and transformation in 2020. And do you think the ability to change more quickly than they might have done in the past will actually sort of change the tempo going forward? Like we saw huge, even sort of public sector working from home or we talk about sort of the medical, you know, protective equipment. There was lots of change that happened very quickly. Does that shift the way that government would normally work going into the future, do you think? Yeah, look, I think the, the whole COVID-19 thing and the ability of large parts of the economy to transition into a work-from-home situation was a fantastic development that enabled a lot of economic activity to continue despite the pandemic. So the underlying infrastructure that we had there, the digital skills of the population to be able to set up a work-from-home environment, all of those sort of things, I think, contributed really well to making us be able to be able to pivot to that. Will that lead to lasting changes? I hope it's going to lead to some changes. I mean, I think there's still a lot to, there's still going to be a demand for having office environments and bringing people together for different activities. And there's an advantage to being in a physical environment with people that you can't really replicate in a remote workspace. But I, I do think that there's going to be more flexibility, which would hopefully enable you know, a greater diversity in the people that the public service can recruit. It creates more cybersecurity risks because you're increasing the attack surface. So I think from a cybersecurity point of view, it's a it's a real work in progress. We've just created all these new vulnerabilities, but we haven't really ripped up the infrastructure or the structure to be able to manage that type of system yet. So that's still a, a work in progress, I think, for us. And then I think there's wider sort of cultural shifts that will be happening in terms of do we really need to travel to interstate or overseas for one minor meeting? Is there opportunities to do a lot more remote discussions with people that are live in different physical locations? And I think hopefully that that lasts because I don't think we need to go back to the world of travelling every other day for minor reasons. So there is a lot for people to digest in terms of where they might sit. We've named at the beginning of our discussion some of those areas from you know, higher education, financial services. We've talked a little bit about agriculture and other areas. As we sort of conclude the conversation, what do people need to know that they don't know and where are they focusing their energy? There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of headlines. There's a lot of fear. 
If you could look at the three areas that people need to first understand what they need to do, how does the legislation affect them and what are the three simplest things that they need to be doing to make sure that they are aware of their responsibilities and making moves to make themselves protected? It's a big question, but I think there is a lot of confusion. So what's the signal to noise in this conversation? Well, I mean, I think if you're in any of the listed sectors, so there's 11 sectors that have been listed by the government, if you're any decently sized operator in that space, you really need to be talking to your peak industry bodies to understand how this is going to apply to you and taking a look at the legislation because there's positive obligations on you, there's consequences for non-compliance. I think it's going to be a soft phase-in period because otherwise the government's going to run into lots of issues, but there is going to be a need for you to eventually rip up capability. And I think especially for industries that don't normally think about cybersecurity, it's going to be a bit of a big shift because their systems are not going to be up to scratch and they're going to have to do quite a bit of heavy lifting to get them up to speed. So I think if you're in any of those 11 industry sectors that are listed and you're a reasonable size player, I'd be getting on the phone to your industry body and having a chat about how this works or or reaching out to the Department of Home Affairs to understand, you know, what your obligations are and taking a look at the legislation. And I guess the other side of that is that those industry associations are geared up themselves. So, Well, that's right. I think the industry, from my discussions, this is very anecdotal, but with a half dozen of them, there's a lot of grouping up to be done in, in some of them. So that's, but hopefully by having their members you know, request them, you'd be having a, a bit more um, grouping up being done internally about how this is going to apply. But I think there's there's lots of work to be done, particularly in sectors that traditionally haven't been involved in this type of engagement with government on cybersecurity issues. Derek? Yeah, look, certainly, Ferg's right. We need to educate ourselves. If you're on the list, you need to be considering and identifying and understanding, at least taking some sort of baseline position on where you are in terms of your cyber maturity. I mean, the objective here, ultimately, we, what's it about, is because we you know the government and, and we are seeing the examples of a much more prevalent in terms of cyber activity, cyber, you know, attacks happening across our economy, across our community. And so we need to take action against it. And I think there is a conversation to be had there. There are many areas of the potential sectors that have been included in the remit of the legislation that do need to take some immediate steps to start that journey and part of that's actually you know taking a stock take and identifying where are you today and you know what is my maturity and what are my risks what are my cyber risks and verizon publishes the data breach investigation report one of our signature annual reports and it's very clear that the individual is still the weakest link 85 percent of all breaches both financially mated, but they're driven by an individual. So, and we can see that in terms of just the through rate against ransomware or, or phishing attacks, how easy that is to happen. And I think so there is more education to be done. There's more identification of risk. And ultimately, there will need to be more resources spent and allocated towards addressing and responding to the threat we face. And so we all have a role in that, whether it's organisations like ASPE, whether it's providers like Verizon who are providing services, or it's those members or organisations that operate in those sectors, you know, will have a responsibility to work together, to engage with government and to learn and understand what are the steps and changes that will need to be taken. So just a final question. If you are one of those industries that's now sort of on the list, where would you be looking for one of those more mature industries to sort of get an idea of even what the staff profile looks like, if you're allocating more resources or more skills internally, 
what would it be financial services or telecommunications? What are the more mature industries that have been grappling and working through these processes for a, a longer time? For me, it's the banking sector and telecommunications are right at the front edge of this. They've been doing it for a long time and they've gripped up great capability. The challenge, I guess, is if you're not a very mature industry and you're looking at the banking sector or telecommunications, you might freak out at the number of staff required and the the cost involved. So probably wouldn't want to benchmark yourself against a a bank necessarily, but they certainly, I think, provide a lot of insights in terms of how you could structure and the types of capability that you're going to need to deal with this I certainly agree. I think there are some sectors that are very well along the journey, but it's a challenge. That's right. There is quite a gulf. And if we look at the financial sector itself, there are some, even within that sector, there is a divergence, but the banks uh, certainly are at the forefront. They have some very significant capability and they've also been quite adept at sharing information within industry and also increasingly with government. And I think that's, uh, you know, that two-way flow within your community and then with government is part of the change, like the cultural change that will need to happen as part of the legislation coming into force. That's a really good place to leave the discussion today. Lots of really practical insights. There will be much more discussion about this legislation and I really appreciate you both joining us today to talk through what some of the challenges are, what the opportunities are, and just to pull apart a little bit about where we can make sure that industry and government are working closely together to make sure that we are resilient as a country. Fergus Hansen, Director, International Cyber Policy Centre at ASPE, and Derek Fittler, Head of Government at Verizon Business Group. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this special Verizon Age of Trust podcast. For more, keep tuning in to Innovation Oz podcast or go to verizon.com.